So to me, the people who are, are talking about where these subgroups are coming from and who they actually are, are the ones doing a, a better job than people just sort of like lifting up the rock and being like, this is gross. After the 2016 presidential election, many journalists were surprised by the sudden rise of the alt-right. But those who had been paying attention to what was going on online were not surprised at all. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Dale Baran is a writer and artist whose work has appeared in publications ranging from Quartz to HuffPost to The Daily Dot. His 2017 article for Medium, 4chan, The Skeleton Key to the Rise of Trump, exposed the internet origins of the outright support of Donald Trump. He expands on that subject in his new book, It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office. Welcome to the podcast, Dale. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're actually here in your office at Morgan State University. And uh, I, I heard you interviewed on another podcast, and I went out and I got your book. You know, this is a journalism podcast. People might wonder, well, why, why do we have this guy who wrote this book about Donald Trump and about 4chan? Why is it kind of important? I think hopefully we'll, as we, we get through the discussion, that will become evident. But so how did you first hear about 4chan, and what were your experiences with it early on? I first heard about it around 2005. Uh, it had appeared. I was making a webcomic, one of early first-generation webcomic. There weren't a lot of comics online back then, but it had showed up in my referral logs. So people were linking, unfortunately, were linking the comic. And so by that point, I was like, this is a very weird site, and it's very popular. It was actually a huge portion of our traffic was coming from there. And then I realized that when I would go promote the comic at my local anime convention, Otakon, that's where they were meeting. So I saw sort of the early meetings there and then watched as it grew into this large phenomenon. So back then they were talking about stuff like memes and trolling collectives, stuff that by 2016 we all know and sort of leaked down into popular culture. But then it was just confined to this weird little anime subgroup, which back then it was just an anime fan website but it also kind of grew as a countercultural space. So who were the people who were on it, and, and how did it sort of develop into this culture of trolling? It was really devoted to, it was young people, mostly young men, and it was devoted to anime, so adjacent to that was this otaku culture, so the idea, uh, really imported from Japan, that you would drop out of life in the most extreme versions. In the lightest versions, you're just a fan of anime. In the most extreme versions, you've dropped out of life and you don't really want to compete in school. It's too hard. You don't want to compete in real life to climb the ladder of success. So you're just consuming all this fantasy fiction. And that fortune was a copy of an anime otaku website called Two Channel in Japan. Or it also had its origins in another American website called Something Awful, which was really about... 90s nihilism, late 90s nihilism of dropping out, slacker culture. And so the attitude was that combined. So it was really about like, we're going to spend all our day on the internet goofing off. And that turned into this really cynical idea of trolling to tearing apart other fantasy experiences online, tearing apart early proto-social media, like ganging together in these like huge groups of idle adolescent men that would then go raid another site or cause mischief online. So that was what it was known for at the time, sort of pre-2008. So, you know, pre the 2016 election, what were some of the events and uh, protests that people might be familiar with that kind of track back to 4chan? So it 
turns out this weird site, which was also known as the underbelly of the internet since all posts were anonymous and it was self-deleting. So something you post there would delete very soon after. It was also known for all this weird, dark, cynical content, which went along with the user base. So weirdly enough, it invented all these things like first memes. So the very idea of an internet meme came out of something awful in 4chan. And then after trolling collectives by 2008, that attitude of dropping out of life and being a nihilist had flipped weirdly that the trolling collectives realized that, oh, we're hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people strong. We have some impact on society. We invented memes, which are now propagating through society. And they thought, we're so strong, we actually have autonomy. And they created this political movement called Anonymous, which then fought first the Church of Scientology and then defended Julian Assange in 2011 during the WikiLeaks scandal, would hack large corporations. But by 2012... The FBI and other security forces had really gotten wise to that. They arrested a lot of those people. And so after that, what occurred was there was this return to despair on the boards, uh, return to the like a hyper otaku culture. And then we have Gamergate grew out of 4chan, which was a misogynistic gamer campaign that was like a harassment campaign in the style of the early trolling campaigns. And that evolved into the alt-right. So the people that were leading that those same figures became figures in the alt-right and, and Donald Trump. And so all of that came out of 4chan. And then even recently, even after the book, the alt-right, uh, particularly on the chans, has evolved to create this sort of alt-right terror epidemic. So the, a lot of the latest shootings in El Paso, in New Zealand, in Poway, California, those were all 8chan shootings. So the copy of 4chan that existed even sort of the lower, more depraved copy, those young men came off of 8chan. So that's the latest sort of Chan-related thing that we're all confronting. Okay, just I, I think maybe we need to sort of back up here and sort of define our terms as to what 4chan and what 8chan are. Sure. I mean, they're, they're boards, but they're places where people can meet and they can share images, they can right. share messages and ideologies. Right. So at a very fundamental level, these are just websites and they're message boards, so anyone can go there and post. But over the years, they developed a culture. So when I talk about the Chan's, I talk really mostly about 4chan, but over the years, as the user base grew and sort of developed its own culture, they would then really orbit a circle of copycat sites. There were always other chans that they would go to and kind of float between them. And by 2015, there was a big switch when a lot of the user base moved to the far right. It was a big switch from 4chan to 8chan. So 8chan was a copy that was started by a 15-year-old boy like 4chan was. <laughs> 4chan was in 2003. It was also started by a 15-year-old boy, then 15. So the, the more licentious copy of 8chan really took over in 2015 for a lot of the, the alt-right elements. So what was it for the alt-right community? What was it that it was attractive about these sites? Well, it was always known that it, there was very low tolerance for, or rather, there were a few rules. So 4chan had very few rules, uh, essentially what was illegal in the US, and there were anti-harassment rules. And then 8chan did away with even some of the anti-harassment rules, which is why they tolerated Gamergate, which was more or less a harassment campaign. So they were known as really licentious sites where anything, you could get away with anything, you could say very offensive language, and you wouldn't be banned from the site, or there wouldn't be moderation there. So there was that. But I talk about in my book where you kind of the inverse of that is that there were a lot of people 
young men hanging out on 4chan before they were fascists, before they were far-right conservatives. And they were in this nihilistic despair culture that 4chan had always defined since the otaku days. And it was really getting worse. 10, 15 years had passed. Or you're a younger kid. And your prospects for life have diminished even more. So you, just like the last generation, really feel like life is hyper-competitive. You can't compete. You don't really have access to adequate education or fulfilling work or you're living in your mom's basement. It's hard to get good housing. All that stuff that everyone knows young people are facing. That, combined with this expansive fantasy worlds, like expansive escapist stuff that you're like, oh, I'm just going to drop out, I'm going to play video games all day. Those two things were expanding, so you had a new generation who loved 4chan culture, but were kind of even more despairing about it. Those conditions primed them to have this crisis, which pushed them to extreme ideology like fascism. And things like misogyny, where you know these are young men who have very few prospects, maybe have difficulty communicating with women to with other people. Yeah. And so that makes them sort of susceptible for, you know, yeah, this makes sense. It's not me. It's whatever these other conditions are that, that are putting me in the situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. It actually started really with a resentment towards women, a sort of sour grapes feeling that I'm so dropped out of life. I'm never going to leave my parents' basement. I'm never going to get a good job. I'm never going to have any status economically. And therefore, I'm going to be always unsuccessful with women. And that turned into this incel phenomenon, this idea of involuntary celibate. So that a lot of the young men there then said and convinced themselves in this echo chamber online that I'm doomed to be this way. I'm born to be this way. And so there's really no other option for me ever. And that attitude evolved into this idea that the only way then you kind of get this very extremist philosophy where they say, well, now that I'm totally disenfranchised from society, I'm totally on the margins. They find solidarity only in their whiteness or they find they feel like they're dissipated. They don't have any rules in their life. And they think, oh, well, if only society were more traditional, if I didn't have the Internet, if I didn't have this sort of invitation to just be in my mom's basement, constantly consuming these things. If I had a rigid set of traditionalist rules, that's what I want. That's sort of the ideal. So this hyper, this like sort of idealization of hyper-traditionalism deeply appealed to them. And then they got really, in some ways, recruited by a lot of the neo-Nazis, which had also learned about 4chan and where they are to actually try and recruit these idle young men. Yeah. For example, one of the things you mentioned in the book is, you know, some of these incels sort of, you know, embrace that and sort of began, you know, if you were a virgin after 30, you were a wizard. And, and so right. basically the, the shame or the, the bad thing about your condition is actually that's the thing that's going to hold you up as, a, as an expert, as a higher, more pure member of this community. Right. Yeah. One of the sources I talked to, Frederick Brennan, who founded 8chan and was really deep in the incel community, was running some of the sites for a while. He described it as a depression Olympics where people were competing to say, no, I, if you have a single friend, you're not a true incel, you're not a true member of this community. But of course, that's a dead end, right? That leads to a personal crisis and despair. And then that's when the fascist crisis often happens, when they say, oh, okay, well, society needs to be totally rearranged because here, as, a, as someone on, on the margin so far, like, I'm angry and I need an excuse for why I'm there. Well, it's obvious that these other place people, these other demographics have taken my spot at the top. So all of these fascist ideas 
they get really entranced by because they were looking for an explanation for why they feel like they're on the, the margins of society. Yeah, it's interesting when when the 2016 election sort of rolled around and people began to realize there was this alt-right community on online and there were, the impression was probably for a lot of people who who aren't following this, you know, day to day that this is just the, you know, the the Nazi element that's always sort of on the under underside of society. Right. They're just sort of peeking out again. But in actuality, it was those elements were there. They were taking advantage of this, but they were taking advantage of this larger organization. No, I don't want to say organization, group of people right. who were within this community who right. felt disaffected. Yeah. I My narrative in my book push against that idea. I think that's a good way of putting it. I've seen a lot of other fascist experts or people who study this still talk about it that way in that sense that fascism or racism or bigotry is just sort of this perennial evil and it's always on the margins and we always have to kind of beat it back where I think something a little different is happening that if you look at explanations for what is fascism where it emerges from and the idea that it's really I use Hannah Arendt and she talks about that it really comes from this sense of inequality that when we're now at these record heights of inequality once again same rates as the 1930s when fascism first arose. Fascism is kind of new. It, it doesn't predate that period. We're there again. Once again, we have this group of declassed individuals, marginalized individuals, who are then searching for very pat, unhappy explanations, really kind of using the ideology of capitalism, this idea that like we're all in this hyper-competitive hierarchy. And if you keep that, idea- keep that kind of mindset, but you're on the bottom, you then end up identifying with people at the very top of, of that hierarchy, that power hierarchy, like a cruel-minded businessman like Trump. And you're like, you need to displace these other people to get ahead in, in the hierarchy. But of course, it appeals to people who are totally displaced in society, totally like decontextualized. Yeah, and, and it's trying to view everything in a, in a sort of social Darwinism in which, you know, the, the fittest survive fittest uh, claw themselves to the top and and that you're in competition with other people for whatever these limited resources are. Right. It's Yeah, essentially the social Darwinism, yeah. Keeping that ideology and being totally declassed kind of gets you very close to the fascist mindset already, yeah. Okay. So what was it about this board and the people who were on it and the trolling culture that sort of, you know, inspired you to write the media article? Oh, man. Well, that was like... I mean, it was a wild journey because I had been trying to write about 4chan for years i had seen them back in the day and i was like wow memes are going to be really big like it's going to break out of this subculture and i saw them spreading and then anonymous happened where they were protesting thousands strong around the world at the church of scientology and i went as a journalist really kind of my first foray where i appointed myself a journalist by getting a book that said notes on uh, like a little journalist notebook, say journalist notebook or something. And I went to the protest and I started interviewing all the kids there, uh, all the anonymous kids. And the rule on 4chan back then was it was taken from Fight Club rule number one, you don't talk about 4chan. So they would uh, they would say, oh, we're from a different site. We're from E-Bombs World or something. And then I talked to the Scientologists and, you know, they were like, oh, it's a terrorist group. They had no idea, of course, that it was message board users. And for the, for, through the years, I kind of thought I had missed the boat. I was like, I still don't understand it. I still can't explain it. But by 2016, when Trump had gotten elected and the alt-right was really blooming like a crazy mushroom on 4chan, they were very emboldened right after Trump. And they, in fact, were harassing friends of mine after there was a, the fire at Ghost Ship. So there was a show space 
they decided their new campaign would be to go find show spaces and artist spaces and gallery spaces that were similar, where people were had taken a warehouse and were running shows out of it, and harass those people, try and get them to move out. And the, the idea was it was also sour grapes. It was people who were really almost their peers, the same age, who were had a different solution to the same problem, where they too had the housing problem, but they had ganged together as friends to run arts, art spaces in these sort of marginalized spaces that you couldn't actually live in or whatever. That's why they targeted them. So I, I found myself trying to explain to friends of mine who 4chan was, why I had seen them 10 years ago, like as baby 4chan at Otakon, right? Like, and I was like, how we got from A to B, why, you know, they're kind of like losers and nerds and you shouldn't be that intimidated by what they're trying to do. And then I was like, well, I, I should just write it up. And writing-wise, I had done similar work, but I really came from, I had been writing like, sort of like Zizekian philosophical kind of culture pieces on the side, really on Tumblr, because in my book, I talk about how Tumblr was really about youth culture trying to figure it out, really about like setting a, a value system. So I've been doing kind of work like that. And that flowed into the 4chan piece, which then I guess was very interesting to people, like millions of people read it and they, they found it useful. So how does the 4chan troll culture fit into sort of the last 50 years of the counterculture movement. Oh my gosh. So that's, that's a big the, yeah. question. Yeah, sure. So that's the frame I try and put in my book where I talk about the sweep of disappointment from the 60s and even prior. So if you want to do the large historical sweep, you know, there was this if we talk about fascism, right? The idea was that when Marx had predicted that capitalism would break down and then everyone, these European countries would become socialist. That didn't happen. Instead, fascism arose out of nowhere and many of those countries became fascist in the 30s when inequality reached these heights. Fascism was resolved militarily, but we defeated militarily. But after the war, there were these questions by Marxist philosophers, the one I use in the book, Marcuse in particular. He says, well, we weren't sure it was defeated philosophically. And in fact, the same problems might arise again. And Marcuse became the book that was then used, The One-Dimensional Man, for the counterculture. And the idea was that Marcuse says, look, we still have these same issues that society's real needs, what he calls real needs, so like adequate housing, access to fulfilling work and medical care, education, like society's still kind of bad at providing those, but it's great at providing escapism, what became video games and all that stuff. But back then, like consumerist culture. And so the history of counterculture that Marcuse inspired in the 60s was this idea of co-optation. So all of that, all of those idealistic countercultures to create a new world were then co-opted and used by capitalism to sell escapist fantasies. So you get, you know, 60s counterculture becoming Whole Foods or whatever, or punk becoming fashion. Or if you, if you buy and drink Coke, you'll be happy. Right, exactly, right. So it's sort of used to sell more products. So by the 90s, this had broken down into this intense counterculture. Was this, this was my generation, was just this intense cynicism. So it, that's what it had become. It had just been like, let's believe in nothing because they can't co-op nothing. They can't steal nothing, right? That was the idea. And that was something awful. That was the, the internet. People were like, let's just drop out and hang on the internet, play video games. We know it sucks. We know having cubicle jobs sucks. But that's just what we're going to do. It's just going to be about not caring. But you can't stay there long. And so something awful evolved into 4chan. And 4chan was about dropping out in even this more extreme way and living in otaku fantasies and consuming that. But then by 2008, it like totally flipped. That crisis happened where you're like, you can't live in that vacuum forever. 
So it flipped and they're like, okay, well, we actually have a lot of power online. This dream of like the hacker dream of like the new 60s counterculture, the new power would be online and will challenge the power structure. That actually, that was sort of the dream in the 90s and it got reawakened in 2008 on 4chan. And they're like, we as a collective are powerful. We're going to challenge PayPal. We're going to challenge the security state, MasterCard. We're going to hack MasterCard when they, when they steal Julian Assange's money. When that collapsed, there was the hyper despair, right? right? And they're like, we tried the left and this new generation. They're still there. They're still inheriting that otaku culture, that dropout nihilistic culture, and they're longing to grope for some sort of value system. So that's when they get desperate and find this sort of like idealization and wiping it all away back. We're now full circle back to fascism. So now equality is again, capitalism is sort of creating the same problems where there's like record 1930s level inequality. And we're sort of there again, where we're like, okay, now this weird phenomenon that only existed in the 1930s and 40s that was defeated militarily, the same forces are making it bubble up again. Well, what inspired you then to do the book? <laughs> the book was really came out, I guess, of a sense of necessity where I'd written the article and everyone was like, where's the book? <laughs> That's really what happened. They're like, tell us more. And I'm like, I want to do other things. And they're like, no, you have to write this book. So then I essentially kind of learned to be a journalist. I know this is a journalism podcast, and that's great because, like, that to me, that process, it's what I'm doing now. Like, it's what I learned moving from philosophy and, and writing essays, essentially. And the other people who were covering this beat, too, were kind of quasi-journalists. Like, I noticed I was like, they don't actually have a lot of sources. They were not like, they were just trying to figure it out. They were just, like, sitting online trying to figure it out. But the journalism aspect where the real difference between the essay was the book, I had to go out and find these people and be like, am I right? <laughs> well, you posited your theory and then you went and, uh, and tried to, to figure it out. How difficult was it to track down sources and to sort of, you know, find people to talk? I would say very difficult, uh, particularly because it was this journalism skill, the source skill I was learning. I hadn't done it that much before. And this is a crazy topic and people were by definition anonymous. So, it took a lot of time and a lot of footwork, I think, to cultivate sources and get people to talk to me and annoying people, the classic journalist toolkit uh, tool to annoy people. But yeah, and it's still happening. So of course, I think this probably happens all the time is that after the book comes out, now more people are coming out of the woodwork and they're like, hey, I have a story to tell you, right? That'll <laughs> so be for the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> That's what your publisher will say. So... I'm glad you touched on the, the journalistic aspect of it because that kind of sort of brings it back around. But the other aspect of, of the journalism that I kind of wanted to talk about is for a lot of people, me included, I had heard of 4chan and I wasn't necessarily there be able to make that connection when the 2016 election came around and, and all the talk about the alt-right online and get an understanding of where it came from, how everything's sort of connected together. And that's why I found, found this book very useful. It's an excellent example of there's so much story behind the story, right. uh, the things that you don't know and that gives you context. So you begin to understand this didn't come like a, a bolt of lightning. This is something that had been developing for decades. Right. And that's what I found really useful about this book is it fills in a lot of those spaces because now we're, we're, we're facing – situations where there's a great deal of, you know, people pushing disinformation online, people in you know, groups with agendas. Right. And 
for example, when when you do have a a shooting or something, and it turns out that the uh, the shooter has an agenda, he has a you know has a manifesto that's very similar to other manifestos that are appearing online. It's understanding that there's a depth to this, right? That it's not just a single person; it's a culture, it's it's a shared group, right? What are your thoughts about that? Thanks. I'm glad you find that it, it does that job. Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing about the internet. Sometimes the fortunate thing, but mostly unfortunate that it's hyper complex, kind of like the modern world. So there are these levels of complexity and decoding that you have to do. And so it just takes a lot of work to unravel it. So I often feel like the job I'm doing is unraveling a thread that's tangled. And then once you get it and isolate it, it becomes very clear. The, the story becomes very clear. And this is typical, right? Like, partly it's like, how are people to expect it to know anyway, right? Unless you're in that subculture, but it's only relevant when something awful happens or not to, uh, no pun intended, I guess, but when there's a shooting or something like that, and then suddenly the shooter's manifesto is a carbon copy of another shooter's manifesto and another shooter's manifesto, and those are also encoded with ironic memes, which have these layers of meaning. And then suddenly journalism, journalists run to the manifesto and they say, uh-oh, what is this? Like, this is toxic. Are we spreading the ideology by just talking about it, right? We they don't even understand what it is. And that's natural because it's this garbage, hyper-complex subculture that's generated on the chance. But yeah, I mean, essentially, it takes a lot of delicate unraveling work to figure out how to treat that, what it is. And there are fortunately other people besides me in the past few years, there have been more people on this beat, which are also doing a decent job unraveling it. But yeah, it's hard work and it's definitely journalism work in a fundamental way. So how well do you think mainstream media has been at sort of understanding this subculture? Uh, I think they're getting better at it as they're, as it's becoming more and more of a problem in a sense. And we're learning more about it really starting in 2016. But I do think that, yeah, I mean, there are good things about it. There are reporters who are doing a good job unraveling it. I do think that this idea that it is essentially just toxic and we shouldn't kind of talk about the fundamentals of why it exists often is a problem. So to me, the people who are, are talking about where these subgroups are coming from and who they actually are, are the ones doing a, a better job than people just sort of like lifting up the rock and being like, this is gross, uh, which is often, often the journal, right? Like something spectacle is something that is interesting. So you could, that all, sometimes happens. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important. I mean, you, you mentioned the, um, the question that a lot of people pose when, when these things sort of are revealed, I mean, are we spreading the ideology? How deeply do we need to get into this before we're actually serving the people who are trying to spread this information? Right. And that was part of their game, even the troll army game before it became alt-right, was the idea that you would inject something in the news cycle and you see the joke propagate it because they were inventing something that was fun that the media would pick up on. Yeah. Um, and then the alt-right picked that up. And so now the media are very wary when this happens. And I think... It's almost a case-by-case -case basis, so I did end up agreeing with this idea that you don't spread the shooter's name anymore, and you're kind of careful with the manifesto. You're not like the idea is you don't just throw it out there and publish it. And that was something that the media had to evolve into. That's a very recent innovation that the media does now. So, yeah, I mean, to me, 
this is a concern. And so really you have to understand the culture to know what part aspect of it to report. It's really just research work like anything else. And there are other good journalists who are doing that as well. So I do find that's the case. But there's another risk on the other side, which is to ignore it, right? To just be like, well, we're not going to report on this or we're going to just condemn these people. And a lot of the times they're 19-year-old kids, they're 20-year-old kids who are being brainwashed. So if you kind of just villainize them and condemn them as gross, you're essentially isolating them, which is the opposite of what you need to actually bring them out of it and bring them into a better state of mind. Yeah, that's why it's important to try to understand them and where they're coming from and maybe sort of address those issues that are alienating them. Right. So who did you write this book for? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I had a hard time with the dedication, and I was like, no one wants this book dedicated to them. (laughs) They kind of settled on a, a joke dedication. Though I've heard Vonnegut say this, which is that writers really write to only one person. And I do have that in my head. I have a few people, maybe a very short list of people who I'm like, would they approve, right? Would they, when they read the book, would they say like, this is good work or this is, and I think I do that maybe just as a, as a tool in my own mind, but I don't know if that's actually the goal of the book. Yeah, I do do that. <laughs> so what do you want people to take away from this book? In a nutshell, the book really is about this phenomenon of young people being deprived of really real needs or having a lot of trouble. Society is not really fulfilling those real needs. And then on the other hand, you have society creating a great deal of false needs. So video game worlds, escapism worlds, like gratifying their needs and consumerism, which then combine those two phenomenon combined, you really end up getting something like this so that if it didn't happen on 4chan, it would have happened somewhere else. So the architecture of the site itself is not the reason why it happened. There are deep-seated sociological, societal reasons why it happened, that it bubbled up through the internet, which was essentially a blank slate. 4chan was designed as you can post anything, and that's what we got. That's the main thesis of the book. Again, the book is It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office. Dale, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emil Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.